Welcome to episode three of the Bear Market Brief podcast. I'm your host, Aaron, and today we're going to be drilling down, so to speak, into Russia, oil, and global energy markets. Our conversation stretches everywhere from the Middle East to the far frigid reaches of Siberia. Joining us today is Rauf Mamadov. Rauf is a resident scholar on energy policy at the Middle East Institute here in Washington. He focuses on issues of energy security, global energy industry trends, as well as energy relations between the Middle East, Central Asia, and South Caucasus. Before joining the Middle East Institute, Mamadov had a 10-year career with SOCAR, that's Azerbaijan State Energy Company. We had a great conversation, and we hope you enjoy. So uh, let's dive straight into business here. Uh, we're at a very interesting time for the global oil market. Currently, Urals, uh, looking at the latest mark, is uh, at about $18.45, which is not unprecedented, but that evokes uh, the early days of the Putin administration. Uh, so tell us, what, what's going on with the oil market? Well, it's, it's a phenomenal time. Uh, of course, there, there's a tragic part of it, but for the oil and gas industry overall, uh, it's a paradigm shifting period. Let me give you some background about what was happening so that we are clear about what's happening now. Uh, the, the market has already been, the oil market has already been oversupplied for last five years. So this uh, oversupply problem or malady, it's, it's a chronic, it has become a chronic disease in the market. Um, what happened with the COVID was not only it dipped the demand for, for the oil, it also plummeted the, the consumption, which are two different notions to understand. Demand is more of a long-term perspective, mid to long-term perspective, whereas consumption is what's happening now in real time. And that brought us to a situation where uh, we, we saw negative oil prices, uh, I mean, WTI prices. I think that was unprecedented. And um, we've seen, when it comes to, to Brent oil, which is international benchmark as well, um, or euros, what, what Russia is selling, uh, the price is below $20, and there is a risk that it will go to uh, single digits. Now, in, in order to understand the breakdown of what actually impacting the oil prices, is it only, was it only uh, COVID, was it only pandemic, or was, it, uh, other, was, was there other elements in it as well? Well, uh, as I said, the demand was already weakened. Uh, as you remember, for last three, four years, uh, we have been in a, in a market where price is regulated by a cartel, which is a new version of OPEC called OPEC Plus. It's basically 22 nations of OPEC plus 11 countries led by uh, Russia. And the market has been regulated with this factor for last uh, three years already. And when March 6th meeting happened uh, for the uh, negotiation of potential production cuts, uh, immediate production cuts, uh, Russia and Saudi Arabia did not concur on, 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 first of all, on necessity of making the production cut on March 6th or around that time, or on the amount of production cuts that uh, has to be agreed, which led to uh, uh, information war uh, I don't call it price war because price war has been going on uh, since the inception of the OPEC plus. But the information war started, which was compounded by Saudi Arabia's assertive uh, 
commissions and actions such as uh, production uh, discounts for their oil sold in Europe. Uh, just to put it in perspective, the first two weeks of March, actually for, uh, two weeks after the negotiations failed, Russia hasn't been able to sell a single barrel of euros to European market, which is phenomenal. Uh, it's right there. Um, therefore, I mean, it has been supplying the oil through its pipelines. When we say it hasn't been able to sell its oil, I mean on the spot market. Uh, therefore, uh, the situation was exacerbated with this conflict, uh, which brought the prices even further down. And along the road, throughout this period, the crisis, the pandemic started impacting American economy. And since the first 10 days of March, uh, Trump administration started imposing um, restrictions and lockdowns. And that uh, led to further decline in the consumption because America, uh, whether it comes to the, uh, to the car fleet or uh, air transportation, is one of the leading markets in the world. And when um, industries in the world and when uh, there are lockdowns, of course, the consumption and goes away, it declines right away. And these all factors and compounded, uh, intertwined, uh, led to, led to uh, the situation where uh, the, the parties, which, were, which caused actually this information war and further declined the market, uh, were obliged to come back to the table, the negotiation table. Of course, with the help of the Trump administration, uh, with the mediation of Trump administration and International Energy Agency. And uh, they have reached an uh, unprecedented agreement of cutting 9.7 million barrels of the market, uh, plus uh, 5 million uh, commitment, 5 million barrels of the commitment came from non-OPEC plus countries. But uh, what happened last week, uh, this week, showed that it wasn't enough Although um, the, the production cut agreement will be valid from May 1st, um, the, uh, it didn't have any impact on the prices. It actually had the reverse impact. And what we saw in, with the WTI was, a, was indicative of, of, the, of the situation. Uh, now, why WTI collapsed and Brent didn't, that, that's a question that always been asked. And the reason of that is the infrastructural bottlenecking in, in, the, in the United States, uh, which is... Uh, the American production, most of the American production is located inland uh, and uh, WTI benchmark is, is, is calculated uh, based on that production. And therefore, since it didn't have any access to the oceans, didn't have, was not being able to ship to be shipped, it created uh, enormous oversupply, which brought it us uh, to negative price. For the last two days, uh, we've seen a rebound in, in WTI. Uh, it's, it's not negative anymore, which is uh, it's, it's surprising to, to even mention that as a, as a fact. Um, uh, but now we are in a situation where every, the market is awaiting the May 1st when the production cuts will be effective. And also there is an expectation of another meeting uh, by OPEC plus and other uh, signatories to the recent deal where they will be discussed um, the the need for the further production cuts. Yusuf, this is really um, a perfect storm on the market, you could say. And just for listeners, um, WTI, if I remember correctly, stands for West Texas Intermediary. So it's the blend of the U.S. exports. But let's, yes. step, let's step back here to talk about uh, OPEC plus in the first place, because Russia's relationship with Saudi Arabia, and we're going to get into some foreign policy here, 
uh, is particularly interesting. They went from dating back to, well, 2010 or so, being on opposite sides of the Syrian civil war with pretty diametrically opposed regional interests. Russia, Russia traditionally played nicer with Iran and uh, the U.S. played nicer with Saudi Arabia. This partnership kind of came out of the blue as uh, regional dynamics are shifting. The U.S. is perhaps less interested in the Middle East. So uh, let's talk a little bit about how that partnership came about and then the, the pressures that led the partnership to at least temporarily dissolve to get us where uh, we are right now. And what kind of partnership is it? I've heard the term alliance before, which may be strong. Uh, let's kind of go, go through that list. Yeah, I think the, the perfect storm is the, is the perfect word to describe it. Uh, the circumstances actually brought Saudi Arabia and Russia together. Uh, what happened uh, four years ago when the shale oil started uh, supplying the market with additional 5 million barrels of oil. So there, basically when the impact of shale oil was, uh, was difficult to ignore and that created a, that raised the flag for Saudi Arabia because that was the first time when non-OPEC production uh, surpassed the OPEC production. That meant for Saudi Arabia, the leverage that they have of impact in the prices is uh, under strain or they may lose it very fast. So that was one reason why Saudi Arabia and Russia uh, found a common ground. Uh, we know that uh, it was the first time in the history when the Saudi reigning king visited Russia or Soviet Union, and then there were reciprocal visits by Putin. So that that uh, was the first reason why it brought these two rivals in the in the oil market because they are the two of three countries which uh, produce more than ten million barrels, basically producing double digits, and they were able to do that by disentangling the their geopolitical interests or positions, both in Syria or Iran or other matters as well. Uh, the second reason why Saudi Arabia was encouraged to take the lead in the issue, because the first visit from was from the Saudi Arabia, was the JCPOA agreement, uh, which created a, a necessity for the Saudi Arabia, for the Riyadh, to hedge its interest because it was shocking for uh, for 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 Riyadh, for the kingdom to see United States and Iran to be in any agreement, uh, for the obvious reasons, of course. So these two factors brought them together, and they have managed to keep their uh, political interests aside uh, uh, from their um, commercial interests. They have also continued competing for the market share, and uh, this this competition was evident in in Chinese market where we see it right now as well. Rosneft and Saudi Aramco, I mean Russia and Saudi Aramco, are, Saudi Arabia are uh, you know one month it's Saudi Arabia the largest supplier, another month it's 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 Russian company, a Russian industry. So there's a competition going on uh, still. Uh, so they have managed to put those differences aside and concentrate on OPEC plus and actually to maintain the cartel for three years throughout these geopolitical storms that happened uh, and expand their, try to expand their um, 
partnership on in other areas as well. Now, I wouldn't call this alliance or strategic partnership uh, because of a, you know differences in their uh, perception of the uh, of the world, as well as differences of the role and also competing roles. Because uh, Russia is also trying to be more active regional player in the uh, in the Middle East and globally as well. Uh, and also, uh, given the uh, special relationship between Saudi Arabia and the United States, uh, I would call it more transactional uh, uh, format. And the experience of last one month was uh, was indicative of that uh, of that nature. One of the uh, signals or one of the indications of 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 how these two powers or how these two players perceive this. Uh, relationship uh, was was clear when Nova commented uh, Saudi Arabia's behavior after the April 12th deal, after that unprecedented deal. He said that we never expected it was irrational for Saudi Arabia uh, to act that way. That means that could be interpreted as when the calculations was made in early March of not supporting any production agreement at that time, and uh, defer the decision-making to the end of the month by seeing how the crisis evolved. They didn't expect Saudi Arabia to be so um, aggressive, subtly and directly in their policy uh, decisions or, or by providing discounts or by threats that you know, will oversupply the market and uh, will, will overcompete any, any other um, country and our economy is more, more resilient. Uh, that was a shock for Russian leadership. It shows that they were in higher opinion, in my in my opinion, they were in higher opinion of their relation with Saudi Arabia, and that was a litmus test for uh, for their relations. Now, it doesn't mean this partnership is over. However, it's it's under strain, and this um, these detentions will maintain until the crisis, the pandemic is there, until there is. Uh, oversupply in the market, the abundance is growing, and demand is weakening. As long as this uh, this situation will remain, the strains on the, the on, uh, on the relations between these two countries will remain as well. Um, from time to time, we see um, statements made uh, both by by Russian side and by Saudi Arabia, subtly um, uh, mentioning uh, one's advantage over the other. Or resilience in competing for uh, for the markets for the lucrative markets. Deep topic, very uh, very fascinating. I guess to to continue along that line, you mentioned that uh, Russia and the Saudis were able to put aside their geopolitical differences. Can you talk a bit about Russia's vision for the Middle East, its role there? It seems to me that Russia's tried to play kind of the, the regional honest broker, which is hard to do anywhere, but especially in the Middle East, can't really be a friend to everybody. So how does how does Russia perceive its its regional interests? Well, I, I think the Russia is uh, implementing the Primakov doctrine of being active in regionally in hot spots of the world, especially in the Middle East, because Primakov was so obsessed with the Middle East, as well as it was his uh, sphere of, uh, authority when he was working uh, in special services in KGB. Uh, I think that Russia is implementing that policy of uh, asserting multipolar world 
indicating uh, feebleness or weakness of the United States in, in policing the world uh, and undermining the unipolar, the procession of the unipolar world. And by, by doing so, in order to achieve that recognition of being another pole, uh, along with China in their perception, uh, they want to show actions. They want to show a um, success story. And Syria is, I think that's what you alluded to, is, is one of the examples of it. Or Libya, what we're seeing in Libya, uh, you know, there is a Russian inter interference there as well, is another example. Uh, but it's a very complicated uh, region, geography. So Russia is being very careful. Having said that, it needs to prove its presence in every other region. In order to do so and to prevent uh, further commitment, they are preferring a more limited approach. And that's, how, that's where the uh, paramilitary um, groups play in or fit in, you know, the Wagner group, the others. So they're, they're playing a very careful game. They understand that it's a very complicated territory, but at the same time, they want to be known uh, as, a, as, a, as a success story. And I think uh, what is being projected uh, as a success in Syria, it might not be perceived as a success here in the United States by, by certain groups. It is definitely uh, perceived as a success in the, in the, in the parts of the Middle East, uh, regardless whether it is a success or not. Uh, they have managed to uh, successfully promote the idea, and they're uh, actu actually being, uh, you know, uh, achieving their goals. Um, Saudi Arabia is not the only country that Russia is partnering or Russia is counting on on its pivot to the to the Middle East. UAE is is I believe actually is more important than 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 Saudi Arabia in their uh, in their efforts. Um, and I don't think the, the its relations with Saudi Arabia will um, or the partnership or whatever they have now will be. Um, will be terminated anytime soon. Of course, it will be depending on, on how the, the crisis and the pandemic evolves. But I don't think the, even if the, if the relations between two countries, between Riyadh and Moscow worsens, that will affect their presence in the region because they have other uh, avenues such as the UAE or, or, or Egypt uh, in, the, in North Africa. Or other other parts of the world. Yeah, absolutely. This plays this plays into a dynamic we've covered uh, in BNB Russia and Ukraine a lot, especially for Russia of optics mattering more than the the facts on the ground. Oftentimes, that was especially true with the privatization of Rosneft, which wasn't really privatized at all, but you know gave the image of that. But speaking of Rosneft and and transitioning a little bit more to Russia's not necessarily domestic market, but domestic politics. Uh, Talk about the interplay between Russia's geopolitical vision here, but also the fact that cost was borne by Russian companies. It's not just Russia cutting production, you know, willy nilly out of the blue. It's forcing companies like Rosneft, Gazpromneft to, to make the cuts and then take the hit. In, in Putin and his team's eyes, is the overall market dynamic more important than those individual companies? Uh, that's a great question. I think that's one of the major factors, the, the internal dynamics that is being uh, mainly overlooked when uh, when uh, the OPEC Plus or any other uh, global energy matter uh, is being discussed. The 
what's happening in Russia, what has been happening throughout the, uh, the, the recent independence is the, the struggle between the state, the central government and the companies over who gets the control uh, on deciding how to, how to, devo- how to split the, the revenues, basically a rentier system. In the first, in the 90s, the companies were stronger. Um, you know, we had Yukos, we had um, other companies, Lukoil. Uh, when after Putin came, he centralized the uh, the state's role, actually strengthened the state's role in in, in making these decisions. And now we see the after the, uh, the decade or, two, or almost two decades of of Putin's rule. Now we see. Uh, the company is trying to be more independent as well. And this is happening both uh, wittingly and unwittingly, or, or, or deliberately or, or not. Because uh, what's happening is Rosneft, uh, which is led by Igor Sechin, who comes from Putin's close circle, he was used to be his assistant, and has the, uh, the military background or special service background. He's the only major CEO of, of Russian oil companies. Not only he's the only uh, major CEO, but he's, only, he's also the, the CEO of the largest Russian oil company who doesn't have uh, the energy background or finance background. And, but he has a good access to, uh, to the Kremlin, uh, not necessarily to the, to the cabinet of ministers, not necessarily to the prime minister uh, when it's not Putin, uh, but to, to the Kremlin itself. So, there has always been, uh, especially for the for the last five six years, Sitchin has been trying to uh, impact the decisions made by the state in respect to the oil and gas, uh, whether it's tax regime or um, exemptions uh, from taxes, uh, especially for their projects in Far East, or subsidies uh, to get the more share of the subsidies. As well as the to be the winner of the of the bidding, the tenders that uh, state announces for for the for the prospective oil and gas fields, uh, and the way that uh, Russia's decision was interpreted in in global media was or in Russian media as well is that Sechin, who has been vocal against OPEC Plus for the last two years, uh, for many reasons, he he won by persuading Putin. To abandon the uh, the deal, this could be done now. This notion that Sechin was uh, was the culprit could be th- could be true. Also, could be something that uh, Putin has always been using. Uh, it's it's basically preparing a fertile ground to to announce someone as a scapegoat of a of a decision if a decision goes wrong, which happened, which was which we uh, we saw, but. The, what how Novak explains it, and by the way, the Novak it belongs to more. Um, of course, he's a state minister, he's an energy minister, and he is always um, in the. His position is to give the state more powers than the companies. No, uh, Novak said that this wasn't about Sechin or anyone else. It was more about the, the difference uh, between Saudi Arabia and Russia in perception of the situation associated with the pandemic and how will it will affect the, uh, the the prices or demand or consumption. That was his explanation. However, um, again, the media went and uh, made the scapegoat of, of Sechin. Putin was never 
uh, guilty of making any wrong decisions. And and the way that Novak explained it, that uh, justified it, was that you know we 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 uh, we were right because we told them to finish to to wait until the end of the month and then make a decision. So that was the overall story about the background about um, the Russia's decision on 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 withdraw from the negotiation. Uh, but the of course the Rosneft now that there is a commitment to cut two point five million barrels of oil, Rosneft is the one will get hurt because uh, Rosneft's production uh, is around three point six million barrels. It's the it's the largest in the, in Russia. It's one of the largest in the world as well, um, and that's only without the Bashnev, which Rosneft owns fifty seven percent. If you add Bashnev to it, it's around four. 3.8 or 4 million barrels. And what, what's happening right now is the energy ministry is impo- trying to impose, of course, it's negotiating with this company, but trying to impose 20% proportional, a 20% cut for, for every company, uh, including uh, the companies that you have mentioned, Rosneft, Lucoil, Surgutnevgas, Gazpromnev, Tatnev, and also some independents as well. So if that happens, given that uh, Rosneft produces around 4 million barrels, more than 4 million barrels, uh, Rosneft will, be able, will have to cut around, I guess, 1 million barrels uh, compared to Lukoil's, let's say, um, 250,000 barrels uh, or Surgutnev gas, even, even, even um, lesser than that. So Rosneft will get the heat uh, of, uh, of, try- of having to cut more. The problem with Rosneft or, or other major Russian companies uh, is that most of the production in Russia comes from the West Siberian fields uh, and, and a little bit at the Volga Ural as well. Now, these West Siberian fields, uh, like, like around the two men, uh, Legion of Artovsk, uh, these are, for, for, for instance, the large, one of the largest is somewhat lower field. It's been producing since 1969. Uh, almost uh, 50 years ago, I guess. And it's still the largest producer. But the way that they maintain the, the production uh, numbers, high production numbers, production rates in these fields, is they use the, what we call uh, extraction um, recovery techniques. And when you cut, I'm trying not to be too technical here, when you cut the production, it's not just turning off the valve. It means you have to um, decrease the pressure in the wells. I think I'm being too technical. Uh, and But if you do that, then you're risking of uh, some of your reserves never being recovered in the future because they they remain in the in the lower horizons of the field. Uh, was I was I clear? Is it was it too much? Yes, I'll I'll take another whack for for listeners. So, but I think the the issue that Russia is facing geologically is you can't just turn off you can't just turn off the oil. It's not like a spigot like a sink. Um, and by trying to turn it off, Russia is shrinking basically shrinking the reserves, shrinking the number of barrels that can get out of these fields. Exactly. The, the, they are risking the, um, to, uh, to not be able to recover those, those reserves anymore. Um, and the other problem is that since these, uh, the production in Russia was expected to peak around 2024, the need for investment into the new fields 
the necessity makes Russian companies to drill more uh, in order to make more money, you know, to reap the maximum benefit of it. Uh, and all these fields are located, the new fields are located in the East Siberian. Uh, just to put in context, the, the Bancor field, which is uh, a new uh, group of cluster of fields that Rosneft is trying to sell to Asian buyers, mainly Chinese, Indian, and uh, Japanese companies. Uh, they're located 2,000 kilometers northwest northeast of of Samat Lor field, which is the largest field now. So you have to go further to the permafrost, further to the Arctic and far east now for Resnev to uh to produce new fields. That means the production costs um grow exponentially. And the real risk for Resnev is not uh the risk of losing those reserves that it's producing now, but the risk of losing the future production because in the conventional oil and gas industry, there's a, there's a term called lead period. That means you have to make a decision, final investment decision, on certain day, on like today, for, for the oil well to produce in four or five years, in the best scenario, because these are very complicated for the, uh, in terms of the geology, and now in Rosneft's case, in terms of the, the climate and environment as well. Uh, and now Rosneft, with, uh, with this price environment, and with the shock that is um, going through, the real risk for Rosneft and other major producers in Russia, especially the state-owned companies, uh, of not being able to get the reserves, uh, the financial uh, resources, to, uh, to replenish their reserves by investing in, um, in these fields in East Siberia. And also, the, it's also risking of... Of, of failing in attracting the foreign investment. The investors were already uh, having second thoughts in investing these projects, even in the normal times. Now they're risking of not getting those investments. And uh, these projects, and the state's position is that we will only provide subsidy if, if a company uh, attracts certain percentage of the, of the field uh, or tax exemptions will be, uh, will be contingent to that, to that success. I think the main problem is not of losing those um, production results, but of the risking the, the future uh, of the oil industry. If, because once it goes to decline and Russia is not able to replenish its reserves, and also notwithstanding that uh, Rosneft and other companies are publicly traded companies as well, so, and the success of any oil company is measured by its uh, success in replenishing its reserves, showing that they have you know, found certain amount of reserves and they will invest certain amount of money in the near future to, to extract those reserves. So I think that's a bigger threat for Russian oil and gas industry than uh, risking like technological problems or technical problems of risking certain reserves, uh, which could be actually a bigger problem, uh, a significant issue as well. Yeah, and that's in the long term. I mean, Russia, I don't want to say it's as dependent on oil and its budget as it used to be, although that's also partly mathematical. Uh, but you can't make oil money if you're not producing oil and that, that production is shrinking. That's actually all the time we have. Um, as, as was clear, there's a lot of moving parts, especially with the oil and gas market and how that plays into geopolitics with Russia. But thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Again, I'm your host, Aaron, and you can follow BMB Russia and Ukraine at the Twitter handle at Bear Market Brief. BMB is a project of the Foreign Policy Research Institute, a nonpartisan think tank in Philadelphia. 
For more information about this and other initiatives, be sure to visit fpri.org.